Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities podcast. It's National Poetry Month. Do you read poetry? Do you enjoy reading poetry? One article title I saw on the internet read, How to Read Poetry and Actually Enjoy It for National Poetry Month. What are the ways we can enjoy a poem? Well, let's have that discussion and turn to an expert for some thoughts, uh, some clarification, maybe even a hint or two uh, about how you can enjoy a poem. Our friend Richard Taylor returns to the podcast with a master class on how to enjoy poetry. Richard is a 2023 inductee into the Kentucky Writers Hall of Fame, the author of 12 books of poetry, two novels, four books of nonfiction. He was the Kentucky Port Laureate from 1999 to 2001. It's such a pleasure to see Richard again in person. The last time I saw him, he was up on stage at the Kentucky Writers Hall of Fame being inducted. And that must have been a supreme honor for you. It was. It's a pleasure to be here, Bill. Richard, um, we want you to teach us a little bit about poetry. And today, I guess maybe I'll just start by saying, well, let's hear a little bit about your poetry life. I mean, 12 books of poetry, but when did you start reading poetry? You know, I owe my love of poetry to a love of language. And in my household growing up, my father was an attorney. He was not a particularly uh, talkative person. But in our house, my, my uncle, my mother's brother, lived. And he inculcated in me a love of language. And it was not only through subscribing to books for me, but, but having me keep word lists and quizzing me about language. And I think a love of poetry begins with a love of language and the way language works. And too often in our society, we treat language rather superficially, that we don't appreciate the nuances of our language. We have an incredibly rich language, and I'm no language chauvinist, but perhaps the, the, the richest of languages because we borrow so much from other languages. And uh, one of the things I try to teach my students is a love of language through looking at etymology, uh, what words mean. As I was preparing for this broadcast, I, I looked at a poem by uh, Mary Oliver called Daisies. And, uh, and that word resonated with me because I recalled that Daisy is a poem in itself. The etymology of that word is it's actually day's eye. And if you think about it, every dandelion, every, every daisy, excuse me, I'll talk about dandelions in a minute. <laughs> uh, every daisy 
is a small sun. And someone, probably in Elizabethan times or earlier, saw the resemblance between this flower and the sun itself, referring to it as day's eye. That, of course, uh, elided into daisy. Mm. The word dandelion, if you want another, is borrowed from the French, and it's actually what's called a folk etymology. It means don't de lion. A dandelion has, pardon me, a, a, a dandelion has a leaf on it that resembles the teeth of a lion. That was the metaphor that was created to describe it. And in American parlance, in English parlance, that became dandelion. Uh, so we're not accustomed to looking at, we can do it with a Google in, in minutes, in seconds, really. Uh, we're not accustomed to treating language in a serious way. That's partially, I think, because we are in, bombarded with language that's used imprecisely, whether it's selling us uh, cars or, or toothpaste. And uh, the language of commerce is not often a language that accounts for the niceties as well as the beauties of language. So when you were a youngster and uh, learning language, uh, you were reading poetry, memorizing poetry. As uh, how, uh, what, what age were you at that time? Oh gosh, I, I don't think I really uh, fell in love with poetry until I was in high school, and it was uh, not so much through a teacher or, or a uh, a registered teacher. I had a uh, I just wrote an essay on this person uh, who was absolutely brilliant. He turned me on to poetry. He gave me a book, Oscar Williams's A Treasury of Modern Poetry, and I uh, started reading Fern Hill and E.E. And, uh, e. E. Cummins in high school were all a little rebellious, and there was a strain of E.E. E. Cummins that challenged uh, our perceived notions of things. Uh, and, and I was hooked, and I wrote absolutely terrible terrible <laughs> poetry but you start somewhere but and but it grew out of that love of language and a desire to imitate i tell my students that that art is imitation and uh it's looking at models and writing your own version of those models in many instances whether it's a love poem or a poem commemorating someone's passing uh Poetry heightens our awareness, our insight into what it means to be human. I created a, a kind of a, a rough definition of poetry that poetry in its way is a, it, it commemorates or records the lifelong dialogue that we have with ourselves about the mystery and the miracle of living on this planet. And life is full of mystery, uh, it's full of sorrow as well as triumph, but 
poetry in some ways commemorates that. Poetry had its origins actually in religion. And if you'll permit me, sure, I'm going to read a poem that is actually a prayer. And it's written by a former National Poet Laureate named Kay Ryan. And I should explain that in this poem, she creates a couple of words. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that the poem's title is in fact a word, blandeur as opposed to grandeur, spelled with an E-U-R. And bland, we, we know, means uh, something that is sort of ho-hum, something plain. that is plain. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the saying about beige. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that is that to some people, for some people, beige is more than just a color. It's a way of life. <laughs> and anyway, there are a couple of words yeah. that she uses here, and, and there are a couple of references, but it is, it's one of those poems I read and say, I would have given anything to have written this poem. And as I said, it's, it's a prayer. It's a kind of uh, asking God to prevent the kinds of natural disasters. And of course, that's very timely with our sense of uh, climate change, global warming. Blander, if it please God, let less happen. Even out Earth's ronger, flatten Iger, blanden the Grand Canyon. Make valleys slightly higher, widen fissures to arable land. Remand your terrible glaciers and silence their calving, having or doubling all geographical features toward the mean. Unlean against our hearts. Withdraw your grandeur from these parts. And it's, uh, she writes incredibly, uh, they're, they're fairly difficult poems, a lot of them, and yet, they are, and they're more intellectual than, than feeling, and, and poetry is supposed to carry a, a, a sensation of, of feeling. And, and yet, I think in its way, this poem goes back to the origins of poetry itself. As we honor the gods, as we implore the gods to lighten our burden or grant us some sort of redemption or salvation. And so here's Kay Ryan uh, writing a poem about, about reaching out to God to make things a little less dramatic than they've been. Do you think sometimes, um, and as a, a professor of poetry, do you think sometimes we overanalyze poetry? Yes. Uh, Yes, I think there's a poem by Billy Collins called Introduction to Poetry in which he talks about uh, our teachers sort of encouraging us to beat meaning out of a line of poetry. It can be carried to, to extremes. I would recommend for those of your listeners who want to, who want to sort of gain a foothold or an introduction to poetry, 
it's free, it's online. Uh, subscribe to the Writer's Almanac. And Garrison Keillor, uh, bless him, uses or selects poems that are accessible. Mm -hmm. And they are, they're, they're very moving. And I don't think literature should be only for the few. I think it should, it should celebrate our democratic republic and uh, be accessible to everyone. And yet, we have to meet the writer halfway. We have to decide that this is language used much more intentionally, much more deliberately than language is often used. And sometimes it sends us to the dictionary and sometimes it requires more than one reading. But if it's well put together, that effort more than doubles the return that we derive from reading it. I just heard the novelist um, Geraldine Brooks, uh, mm -hmm. who uh, has famously now uh, written Horse about mm -hmm. the uh, Lexington uh, uh, horse, uh, but uh, won the Pulitzer in 2006 for March. and is a very successful novelist uh, after being a journalist for so long, but she's not a, port, a poet. But I just heard her say uh, recently that she begins each day not with meditation, but with a poem. She opens up, um, I believe she re re referenced the, the Oxford uh, poetry, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. probably know the volume, and mm -hmm. just she just opens up to a page and Great. reads the, uh, that's, her, that's her meditation. That's the way she starts. W would you advise people to, to do that, to, to practice that? Should they have a favorite poet they go to? Billy Collins is a, is a great example. Or a Richard Taylor with no, 12 books. Billy Collins oh. is, a, is a great place to, to start. And uh, I, would, I would recommend, uh, if, if you don't wish to subscribe, to, I had my students do this. And as an exercise, when I taught Introduction to Poetry at Transylvania, each of them uh, gratuitously could sign up for Writer's Almanac, and the assignment was to respond twice a week, choose a poem, and respond to it in some way. Uh, and they kept a journal. I would take up the journals twice during the semester, and uh, I wasn't trying to determine whether I agreed or disagreed with their response. I was trying to elicit responses. And uh, we need to s begin to see poetry as, as a means to gain, to lead richer, fuller lives, which is very much in keeping with what you do with Kentucky Humanities, but also to sort of gain insight in what it, into what it means to be human. And uh, I'm not sure where else we get that. Uh, philosophy, we, we, it's in fiction, sure it is. Uh, but perhaps not to the degree generally that you find it in good poetry. The uh, effort that one goes through to, uh, in a classroom, for example, I mean, that was an assignment that you made. Um, you are, I'm sure, encouraging people to go to the bookstore um, to uh, purchase uh, sure. a Kentucky Poets uh, work and read it not for an assignment or because they have to, but because they enjoy it. In fact, I just recently uh, heard uh, someone comment 
that they really weren't a fan of poetry, never really got into it, had to take it in school some, until they just happened to leaf through Ada Limon's uh, most recent publication, Ada Limon, a uh, Lexington-based poet mm-hmm. now, who is the <clears throat> United States Poet Laureate. Right. And her work um, is uh, beautiful in its um, language and construction, but has has a message too. And this person just happened to say, uh, and this is maybe an overused phrase, she spoke to me. I could understand for the yeah. first time what someone else was saying to me. Yeah. I used to encourage students to, uh, one of their assignments was to, uh, I would, we would read a book in common, select a, someone, it might be Sharon Olds, it might be Billy Collins, but then we would, for a second paper, they could go to, the, I would encourage them, go to the library, go to the 800s in the Dewey Decimals, the 811s and 821s, and just start as you would going to a shoe store. Try on a shoe to see if it fits. Mm-hmm. Well, pull out a, a collection of poems and take a look at it and see if this writer speaks to you. And very few of us buy the first pair of shoes we try on. Look for the poem that, or look for the poet who rings your bell. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of them have come at least they tell me, many of them have come to, to find poets they, they revere and that both entertain and instruct them through, through just that kind of casual trying on the shoe. Uh, and and uh, you can do it in a public library, you can do it at a university, you can do it at a bookstore, and... Uh, and once you're hooked, once you find that poet, uh, that leads to other poets. And, and they're poets, I make judgments about every poem, every poet I read. And some, uh, some ring my bell more than others. And it isn't that you should be down on what doesn't get to you, but that you should celebrate what does. Why should one listen to poetry being read out loud? Ah, well, when you think about it, poetry preceded written language. That Homer in, what was it, maybe 850 BC, Hmm. composed his Iliad, his, the two great epics in, in the Greek world, there were three, three forms in which poetry was used. One was the epic, the lyric, and, and drama. Uh, Homer could not write. There was no written language in Greece at the time he composed the, uh, the Iliad and, and the Odyssey. And so he had to memorize that language and one of the and, and rhyme was used because it became a mnemonic device, an aid to memory, right? So, so individuals, we the, the professional they were called rhapsodoi. The rhapsodoi, the professional reciter of poems, would memorize twelve to fourteen thousand lines of poetry. Hmm. 
Try that with a book with a with a page of prose, <laughs> and you're up against something. Yeah. So rhythm, sound, uh, rhyme, all of these components became means by which language took on an, an oral quality, an auditory quality. Do you um, do you practice do you practice reading your own poems out loud? Sure. When you're by yourself in your home. I have if I'm really scared. <laughs> uh, I'm not so scared, as scared these days. So, but shouldn't everything be, be verbal? I mean, shouldn't everything be out loud? Shouldn't you hear your own words being sure. spoken by yourself? Uh, sure. And then, and then do you contrast that with when you hear someone else read your work out sure. loud? Well, I, I think a lot about delivery, and I'm not sure I'm... But as a, you are an accomplished speaker, incidentally. But not uh, a but not a not a poetry reader. Thank you very much. Well, and, uh, it's it's but true, not, Bill. But not one who recites or uh, might be adept at reading poetry mm-hmm. out loud mm-hmm. to an audience. Well, it's it's really a question of. Uh, I have a close friend who's a speech teacher, and she can hear a given speaker, and she can automatically register the effect of that person as a public speaker by the way he or she uh, uh, uses breath, Mm. the way he or she uses pauses, uh, the rate at which that person reads. If we're communicating, we need to read read aloud at a pace, uh, a rate that people can comprehend. And if we don't, uh, we're not doing poetry a service because we're not fully communicating. I think I've probably said this to you before. Um, Maybe not. Um, If I did, you might have forgotten it. But I don't think I'll ever forget James Baker Hall and his uh, presentation. Wonderful reader. And... It wasn't, um, I'm sure you could Google him today and, and, and see some video. I hope you can. I'm sure that <clears throat> KET probably has uh, something uh, on their website. Uh, it wasn't affected in a way that he was uh, over-dramatizing, I, I don't mm-hmm. think. It was natural to him, don't yeah. you believe? Yeah, he had a very special way of reading his his poems and... and I don't know whether it was creating drama in his voice or uh, a, a kind of intimacy in his voice, but he was an excellent, excellent reader and very uh, distinctive. I could, mm. you know, I wouldn't have to see him. I could mm-hmm. hear his voice among a hundred other voices mm. and know that it was his work. Who else can you think of that we might suggest people? or a poem for that matter, um, listen to or watch, read uh, from the internet uh, that we have today. You mentioned uh, Garrison Keillor, so distinctive and will be forever and ever. Um, Tracy K. Smith, the former Port Laureate uh, of the United States, I guess three years ago, three three, Mm -hmm. uh, terms ago. Mm -hmm. um, In fact, she did... some work with Kentucky Humanities uh, back in 2000, I guess it was 16 and 17 or so. Since then, we've had a couple of more. 
including the current um, uh, Ada Limon. But Tracy K. Smith started the slowdown, which mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah. is available. And, and I, you know, at first I sort of questioned uh, the the title of the the series that she started. It's still on today. Uh, I don't think every poet laureate is required, or uh, obviously not, because uh, there is another poet that that is doing that today. Mm-hmm. But the slowdown in that uh, to enjoy this portrait, this poem, uh, one needed to be in a frame of mind of uh, in a rest state, uh, a yeah. listening state, which I think is often the case. It's not all. Uh, we 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 all need to slow down a bit and listen. When you say that, I'm reminded of uh, my my old professor, late professor Guy Davenport, for whom I had great great respect. And his definition of art: art is the replacement of indifference by attention. And attention, if you go to the root of that word, it means something like to keep or to hold. And to pay attention to something is to let that that word or that sight gain traction in our minds. And because we are so constantly distracted, we have in some ways forgotten how to pay attention. We, I can remember, all of us remember our parents saying, you pay attention. Well, we're in debt right now. We haven't paid attention. We don't pay attention to enough to what's around us. We don't pay enough attention to language. And poetry is one means by which that can happen. When a poem is put together well, thoughtfully, with resonances, uh, it enriches us. And it reminds me of that definition of literature in which someone said, well, literature is more than the sum of its parts. You can look at the individual words, but it's a combination of words that generate meaning. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, talking to Richard Taylor, um, noted uh, Kentucky poet, uh, 12 Books of Poetry, uh, former uh, poet laureate of uh, the wonderful state of Kentucky, and a writer of uh, fiction and nonfiction and uh, an inductee into the Kentucky Writers Hall of Fame uh, in 2023. We're going to take a short pause and hear from our great underwriter at Spalding University. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Richard to, to leaf through the volumes that he brought mm-hmm. with him and maybe choose another poem or two that will uh, mm-hmm. close out our, our conversation with. But first, from the Sina Jeter Naslin Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing prepares students to publish, produce, and find professional success. Alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film, and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. All right, Richard, uh, I'll let you uh, 
uh, take a look at what you've got there. You've got several books. You probably could make a decision on what to bring, uh, but you've got something there in front of you. I think. I'm going to read a poem by, uh, by Jeff Worley. And it's a little lighter, and it goes back to the origins of poetry, the, what, what's called the ode. And an ode in the classical world was a kind of hymn of praise. And this is called uh, Ode to My Heart. I love this poem. I use it often. And Jeff, we want to say, is a, uh, a great Kentucky uh, poet in his own right and a former poet laureate, That's right. uh, still writing and still publishing, and uh, uh, it'll be nice to hear this uh, read by you, Richard Taylor. Ode to my heart. Science tells me it's the size of my closed fist and roughly conical, like a fat dunce's cap that the five and six ribs are punching bags for its constant workout. The great arteries and veins, a bloody road map, hold it in place. Then there's the business with atria and ventricle, and the vene cave, which is just Latin to me, something I slept through in 10th grade. But my heart loved me even then, keeping on with its quiet, iambic ba-bam, ba-bam, while Mrs. Spencer's eraser sailed my way. How many of us go days, weeks, without giving a nod to our heart? That little Bartleby working away thanklessly in the dark. Nobody stops to say, nice job today, pulmonaries. Great squeeze, capillaries. Aorta, you rule. Never mind that I broke mine in 66, Cheryl. In 75, Anne. In 77, Lee. It just kept posting letters to the bloodstream. And before I knew it, put me back on my feet and sent me into the street for more. Heart invisible and tireless, long-time lubber. Let me keep riding along as long as I can keep up. The tricuspid, mitral, and semi-lunar sending us down road after road. Feel me now at that distant end of your fierce rivers as I make a fist and pump it in the air, a heartfelt bravo to you. <laughs> Wonderful. That should be um, read by all medical students, by all cardiologists. Exactly. Um, exactly. And um, do you do you often see a phrase or read a phrase or take something from Jeff Worley's uh, poem and and write it in your one of many journals that you keep? I do. And um, would you suggest that other people do that too? Sure, I suggest that other people keep journals. <laughs> uh, I started. I, I regret that I started it so late in my life. I started it in 1984, and I, now I'm on volume. I just started volume 263. Uh, I wish I knew what I was thinking when I was in high school, or what how I was sort of pacing yeah. myself in high school. I suspect it was not very laudable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I star. Quotations or language that's used in very special ways, intending to go back to it 
to, I don't know, maybe create a commonplace book, writing down, put compiling all of these mm -hmm. ideas and words. I write, it's a bad habit, but I, I will hear a word, I'll hear you use a word or on television or wherever, and I'll see that word and say, darn, that's a good word. I love that word. Mm -hmm. And most of us deal, you know, we use, I've read this somewhere that most of our active vocabularies is really only a couple of thousand words. Now, we have a lot of words. We know a lot more words, but we don't really consider language as carefully as we should to find what the French call le mot juste. The right word. The right word. And uh, I think poets, worth their salt, do that. They think about language, its function, and what kind of effect it's going to create. And it has to be intentional. It can't simply be accidental. I'm not a proponent of automatic writing, for example. You know, just whatever, whatever uh, my muse dictates is what I throw out and put in the line, you know, put in a poem as something uh, permanent and enduring. As we conclude, uh, Richard, um, your love of language, um, our love of language, and the uh, discussion that we had, uh, even I think before we turned the microphones on, um, about our loss of language and our loss of, um, of that love uh, that we have, can we regain that? Is there... I'm concerned. Uh, we've had discussions yeah. Yeah. Uh, about ChatGBT and about yeah. the work that they're doing uh, in that area and about what uh, the challenge that is for professors yeah. and for humanists, quite frankly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that um, uh, for, for poets, yeah. uh, you, you might uh, put a word or two out there into the ChatGBT and have them write a poem on, uh, on the heart and it would sure. spell out not, not Jeff's exact words, but a poem that might be accepted by the yeah. American Poetry Society. What? Yeah. What? How can we regain our our love and use of good language? I, w I would like to see us discover ways to explore, exploit. Excuse me. One of our most underutilized natural resources, and that's language. And uh, loving language through primarily through reading. Using, you know, I heard a uh, presentation last night by a writer, uh, uh, University Press of Kentucky just published her novel called Traces. Her name's Patricia Hudson. Mm -hmm. And it became very clear to me that, that she uses language very, very carefully. And that made me want to read her book, Traces, and because... Uh, I saw, uh, she wrote a little inscription in the copy I bought. She said, for a fellow lover of language. Mm. And uh, that love of language not only leads to a richer sense of fulfillment in life, but in the creation of beauty and appreciation of not only the natural world, but the qualities that our, our fellow humans possess but it gives us, uh, it can be used to uh, persuade, 
literature and rhetoric are established to persuade others of a viewpoint. It can be, you know, I remember the old book, uh, you probably do too, 30 Days to a More Powerful Vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a kind of artificial approach, mm -hmm. but learning what words mean is important. And I know I've still, Google words I hear and am a little uncertain of, mm -hmm. and I find it a really rich experience. And that uh, often uh, a word that's, hmm, I've never thought about this word. And you can Google the origins of a given word. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Take a word like uh, curfew. Curfew is another what's called a folk etymology. It's borrowed from another language. It's actually from French. And it means couvrir feu, cover the fire. Mm -hmm. And it meant that time when we were to be off of our off the streets, in our houses, and sequestered from others. And yet, to know that is, is to say, gosh, language comes alive to me when I can get beyond the surface of it and look at its bones. You know, what makes, and look at its anatomy. Oh, that's wonderful, uh, a wonderful conclusion. Writing down the bones. <laughs> is one of our, uh, our textbooks that uh, is, is often passed around uh, for uh, writers, fledgling young writers and old writers too. Uh, Richard Taylor, it's always a privilege to see you, to talk with you, to, uh, I'm looking around here, where's your journal? Oh, I left it in the car. Oh no, you, but I've never seen you without I, it. I, you know, often these days I find I leave it places. It's not a good <laughs> practice, Bill. Well, you've been uh, gracious to uh, share this uh, time with us and to uh, and share your love of language and poetry, and we appreciate it so much. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.